silence allows something new to occur. And so when I sit in silence or when I was on this trek and I would very often just pause, I just stop and I would just stay in silence somewhere. It was an attempt to allow something to happen that I wasn't certain of. Mm. And I think it's fairly similar for me, like when I sit in silence. Now at home in my comfortable little safe place, I'm still trying to make some space for something that's not me, that's not me-centered, not something I already know or already think to be born in me, to take new shape. Hello there, you people. How are you? I am good. It's, um, well, if you're listening to this on the day it came out, it's Monday. If not, it's whatever day it is, and I hope that you're having a good day. Oh, man. So, this week, I wanted to try things slightly different, so we'll do some of these announcements at the beginning instead of at the end. So, I'm going to try to make a habit of this. There are transcripts for these shows, and if you would like to read along or whatever, you hear something, you're like, oh, man, yeah, that was good. Um, just know that if you click in the show notes, there's transcripts there of literally every episode. Now, I'm having an issue with the website where for some reason it won't show the archive of transcripts, even though I can see them, which is really stupid, but they're all still there. Find the episode you want, click the button for transcripts, and you should see it. If you don't, let me know. Another request as well. Um, I asked a, a few weeks ago for, hey, who would you want to have on the show? Y'all flooded the inbox with, with uh, emails, and I love that. I, I, I found some people that I'd never heard of that are writing some cool things and doing some some amazing work. And that that was great. So continue to do that. Just contact at can I say this at church.com and um, let me know that. New music this week as well in this episode. You'll hear some slightly different tunes. That is from Provoke Wonder. And I am thankful for their permission and generosity in using their music in this week's episode. Now this week, I talk about Mary of Egypt. Not Mary the mother of God, not Mary Magdalene, and not any of the other Marys that you're like, wait, that Mary? No, not that Mary. So this book written by Amy Frickholm was really eye-opening to me. It has context that is foreign to me and, and moved me in different ways. And I will say, our conversation does not do her text justice. And I don't quite know why. That does not mean it's not a good conversation. It is. It's very good. I enjoy doing it. But what I will say is, at the end of this, you really should look towards getting the book. If anything in this like calls to you, and I will say it does to me, I I slowly read her book, um, Wild Woman, and very, very good, very impactful. So with that said, let's rock and roll with Amy Frickholm. Amy Frickholm, welcome to the podcast, 11 and a half months late, and that's my fault. Um, it's not 11 and a half months, but it doesn't matter. But no, welcome to the show. Um, I forget what our time difference is. I feel like it's two or three hours, but I'm, I'm happy to spend a bit of time with you this evening. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's yeah. really fun. Yeah. So so you you had said that you listened to a little bit of it. How far in did you get? Oh, about, I don't know, 20 minutes. Oh, 
was good. I would, I mean, I would have kept listening for sure. <laughs> well, you still- I just don't, I don't listen to very many podcasts. And so I only yeah. listen to podcasts that are not religious. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I listen, I listen to many podcasts. None of them are, are religious or theological. Theolo- yeah. Theological is the word. Yeah. I, I feel like I do enough of that. So yeah, probably when people ask you kind of what or whom or how or whatever you are, what do you say to that? Hmm. Um, I would say that I'm an intensely curious person and I kind of spend my days um, asking questions and, and running around trying to find answers to them. So I would say that that really defines me. Um, I grew up in a, my dad is a Presbyterian minister Mm. and he, and he, both my parents, they met at a very fundamentalist Baptist church in Detroit, Michigan. And, um, and then they kind of went on this path together of, of education and, and learning and practice. And then, um, I grew up in South Dakota. Um, my dad is a, um, was a college president. He was a college professor and biblical scholar. Um, and just job search took him to South Dakota, to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So that's where I grew up. Hmm. And I now live in a tiny little town in the mountains called Leadville, Colorado. It's uh, 10,200 feet. And, um, yeah, it's a, and I've lived here for 20, 21 years. Hmm. How I don't, I'm not good with, so I live in the mountains air quotes of, of, of Virginia, um, in the Appalachian mountains, which is a, a mountain range. It is. I don't know what our elevations are. So like, can you kind of, so I've seen like, yeah. um, uh, Mount San Francisco. I think we went, my wife and I went out to Arizona, which was the tallest or San Francisco. Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, it's by, by the Grand Canyon. So how big are those mountains just for context? Yeah. So uh, right outside my office window, there are the two biggest mountains in Colorado, the two highest mountains in Colorado, um, Mount Albert and Mount Massive. And mm-hmm. they are just over 14,000 feet. So, um, I think, I think Albert is 14,125. And um, so, and I'm at 10,000. So I look up at the two highest mountains in Colorado. It's now, pretty cool. It's a cool place. Now I'm curious what our um, elevation is. I'm going to look it up. It has nothing to do with okay. anything, but now I'm curious because I feel like I, I have mountain envy. <laughs> well, it's really hard to breathe up here. <laughs> it's And some people's heads expand or like, you know, they, they get really bad headaches here because the air is so thin. So it can, it can cause problems. Yes. Not that high. Um, not that high. I'm not even going to say it because it's, you're it's, not even going to say it because it's, it's embarrassing. Not that high, but again, they're called mountains anyway. Not yeah, why they're I, called mountains. I've been there. They're beautiful. They are beautiful. That's my backyard. Um, yeah. Well, part of it is anyway, not why I brought you on. So you've written many books. I've only read one of them. Um, well, no, I've read two of them, but I only remember a good chunk of one of them because I've read it more recently than the other. And I, uh, there's only so much space in my, in my <laughs> head. Right. Yeah. But I, I would like for you to talk a bit about it. And I, and I would, I wanted to start with a bit of a, an anecdote about it. So I was reading it, um, on a Kindle. I set it down a few weeks ago. I was at my daughter's, um, gymnastics, set it down, walk away, take, I forget what I was doing, taking a picture or something like that. I come back and I start a conversation because someone could see the cover of it. Um, they thought I was talking about Mary, Jesus's mom. We had a conversation that I was not. And then um, he start, He asked the question he asked me, he's like, well, you're Protestant, aren't you? To which I had a lot of responses to that. One of which was, why does that matter? But <laughs> I'm curious, just in a, in a really general sense, what is Wild Woman? Like what, what is that yeah. book 
about for you? Yeah, I mean, it's so it's about this woman who lived in the, you know, I think she probably lived in the fifth century, and she's called a saint in the Orthodox tradition. And, um, and so it's about my search for her. So I started on this path many, many, many years ago. And I was intensely curious, as I mentioned about this woman, and I started exploring all kinds of different ways to understand her story, because it was having such a profound effect on me. And I wanted to know more. Um, I don't consider myself to be a saint follower. I'm not, you know, not the kind of person who gets really interested in saints. I'm also a Protestant. I wasn't raised in a saint-oriented tradition, oriented tradition, but but this woman really just caught my attention. And eventually, after many failed attempts to understand why she had become so important to me, I um, I decided to go look for her. So the story of Wild Woman is about my search for Mary of Egypt. And what I mean by searching for her, because you know, it was clear from the beginning to me that she may or may not have ever lived. So searching for her wasn't like I expected her to just like appear as a, I don't know, ghost or something. It just meant that I I was trying to understand her life and I was struggling to understand it in time. Mm -hmm. So I decided to try to understand it in space. So I crossed the ocean. I went to Egypt, Israel, Palestine, and Jordan and kind of traced. I took this seventh century document that that was the story of her life. And I turned it into a map and then I followed the map. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So Mary of Egypt. And I, I want to be clear when I, when I read the email and then started reading the book, um, i I figured it was a different Mary. How many, you know, if you surveyed say a thousand Christians, U S Christians, <laughs> sure. How many, how many are familiar with Mary of Egypt and why do you think say, that is? One, maybe just one you. out of a thousand, maybe. <laughs> yeah, just me. I mean, I would be one out of a thousand. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's spent any time in orthodoxy, like either, you know, has, but that's not very many American Christians right. for sure, right? Um, it's she's super popular in any kind of Greek or Russian Orthodox tradition, she's well known there. Um, but in, in the American context, I think there's one church, I think it's in Tennessee that's called um, St. Mary of Egypt. Orthodox church. Mm. So there's one church in the U S. Um, yeah, I don't think anybody would know about her. Yeah. And do you feel like that's a, a subset of just the Protestantism of the United States or is that a subset of we aren't interested in that type of a faith? I think it's both for sure. I think it's both. I mean, um, Mary of Egypt was an incredibly popular saint in Europe in the middle ages, but with the reformation, that's those stories just kind of disappeared Mm. and we've not really had any reason to recover them. Um, and we've had, we have our own heroes and celebrities and people that we follow and, you know, we, we haven't needed to reinvent them or recover them necessarily, but it's a rich tradition and there's lots to discover. Um, if you start getting, you know, caught up in that sort of thing. Yeah. So at the beginning of the book, um, or towards the beginning of the book, you talk about whether or not Mary of Egypt actually exists. And and there's a part of where you say, well, I thought that's because she's a legend or not actually a person. What is the difference between her needing to be real or a legend or a myth? Because I feel like legend and myth are used for different reasons. Hmm. Yeah. So she ends up, I think, being kind of a layered figure, right? Well, so there's the, there's the legend of Mary of Egypt, which is not a, I I think for me, the difference between a myth and a legend might be 
personal connection. A myth tells me something about how to live or it opens up some world view for me. And a legend is a story that's interesting, but maybe doesn't have as personal an effect on mm. me. Mm. Um, and so legend is how she's treated in a lot of like American scholarship. Um, and myth, I think, is what I was sort of after, where the the mythic elements of this, like who is this person on a mythic level? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, yeah. I don't know if that, I think that's how I see the difference. Sure. So I grew up in the desert of West Texas, which is by no means the desert that you went on this this pilgrimage trying to retrace Mary's Mary's steps. But desert does have a different form of beauty. And and I would assume being in Colorado, if you've ever come east and you've driven, you're familiar with the desert that I'm speaking oh, of. Yeah. Like it is oh, yeah. monotonously dead. Um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Monotonously, monotonously dead. <laughs> yeah. As I read through your story, and, and I've read other stories similar to yours, where there is a, a pilgrimage, a going away of things that are so convenient why do you feel like it is necessary to strip away all the things that we call normal um, or or convenience or whatever in a quest to do spiritual things? Because um, people will do pilgrimages of other sorts where they don't strip away all that stuff, and it's a pilgrimage. Um, but it doesn't, it seems to be always barren. Like if you go to Graceland or something, and, yeah. and then you just have a really good steak dinner, and then you go see where Elvis lives. <laughs> see the that's, animatronic Elvis. Like, that's kind of pilgrimage where you don't have to strip away anything. Yeah, yeah. Why for yeah. religious treks, why do you feel like there, there needs to be a stripping away, or, or why there's should there this, be? There's this great line. I don't know exactly. I can't remember exactly where it comes from, but um, it comes from the ancient or late ancient pilgrimage tradition around the time where Mary of Egypt was also a pilgrim. And it says that if any pilgrim is found with a coin in his pocket, or if any pilgrim dies on the road with a coin in his pocket, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's a pretty, you know, it's kind of harsh in a way, kind of harsh saying like, well, what pilgrim doesn't plan for his or her next meal or, you know, try to um, know what tomorrow might bring, you know, but I think the idea here is that a pilgrimage in this sense, in this kind of spiritual sense is like you spend it all. There's no holding back. You get to the place of discomfort. You give up what you know. You let something else happen to you that you can't control. And I think in a lot of cases, our our pilgrimages today are a lot more like tourist adventures hmm. where, you know, kind of everything's already planned and you get on the bus and they take you somewhere and they're like, now you have an hour and a half and you get off the bus. But you kind of, you, you're handed an itinerary six months in advance and you know where you're going to eat and where you're going to sleep and so on. But the tradition of pilgrimage is to give up a lot of that stuff, to give up that sense of certainty and to not know what you're going to do next. And I think that is what, I guess I think the spiritual life often asks of us is to give up what we know mm. and enter into what we don't know. And um, Mary of Egypt is a challenging subject on that. What is the role of silence in, in spiritual practices? For me, I mean, it's a really practical thing um, that silence really does just make a space where something can happen that you don't already know or you haven't already figured out silence allows something new to occur. And so when I sit in silence or when I was on this trek and I would very often just pause, I just stop 
and I would just stay in silence somewhere. It was an attempt to allow something to happen that I wasn't certain of. Mm. And I think it's fairly similar for me, like when I sit in silence now at home in my comfortable little safe place, I'm still trying to make some space for something that's not me, that's not me centered, not something I already know or already think to be born in me to take new shape. Yeah. Can I, so I want to ask a few, so I have, a, here we go. I have a son that's 12. Um, and there's a part in the book towards the beginning. I forget. I, it's hard to know what the page numbers are on, yeah, on examined on yeah, Kindle. Like let's that, say, yeah. let's say 27. I don't know. Okay. Um, where there's <laughs> don't look a, it up, people. <laughs> yeah, I can tell He's you what. Stuff. It says location number. Um, so <laughs> there, there's a part there where I don't know if you're telling the story or because you've got some parts towards the end uh, where you've translated a lot of the stuff around Mary that it says, you know, she left Alexandria at the age of 12 and doing all that stuff. And now my son turns 13 in April. And that seems absolutely bonk- Does that just not bonkers. blow your mind? Yeah. yeah. I so, so first off, culturally, is that normal for a 12-year-old to leave the family and go do other things regardless of, of gender? Um, and then what does that kind of say about Mary? And, and yeah. why would Mary do something like that? Why would she do something like that? It was not normal for someone to leave home at 12, and especially not for a girl. Um, It might have been somewhat more normal for a girl to be given in marriage at that age Mm. to, for example, a much older man. Um, And so that could have happened. So it wasn't completely unknown for a young girl of that age to be married or to be, you know, have her be sent into marriage with her family. Um, But it certainly would have been incredibly weird for a young girl of that age to leave her family because in that society, family was everything. I mean, family was your safety, it was your welfare, it was, there weren't people wandering around who didn't have families, you know, everybody had a patron, everybody was under somebody. And so for her to leave home in very dire circumstances, we don't know what they were, um, but to, to make that decision to run away would have been, and I can only think that it would have been one of the more, one, maybe a more violent or more shocking set of circumstances. Um, you know, it could have been that she was going to be married off to somebody who was incredibly violent. It could be that she came from an incredibly violent family and she figured she was better off on her own. Mm -hmm. It could be that she was sold, um, into some kind of slavery, including maybe sexual slavery. Um, that was not unknown. Um, Augustine actually talks about that in one of his sermons about finding or recovering a ship of girls that had been sold by their families um, into sexual slavery. So yeah. it wasn't unknown, but it would have been something extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Augustine brings a lot of that uh, sexual baggage to his whole theory of original yeah. sin. That's a different book, though. That's um, a different book. I haven't written that book. <laughs> that's a different topic altogether. I want to hone in on the sexual part. So there's a, a phrase that you use throughout the book of sleeping in doorways. Is that what it is? Yeah. I'm trying yep. to from, Yeah. Yep. So I didn't quite understand what that meant until I, so I think it was about halfway through the book, and I finally sat down instead of just continuing to read, highlight, read, highlight. And, and all I could imagine is someone literally out of exhaustion trying to have sex with someone just falling asleep right where they are am i in the right am i in the wrong mind frame there for what that means or is it or or does it mean something different than that um well i think 
<laughs> I mean, I think that it means on the one hand that she was homeless. Mm -hmm. She basically didn't have a home. Mm -hmm. And so she slept in doorways is kind of like the ancient way of saying she didn't really have anywhere to sleep. Um, but this was one of my early questions. And one of the things I went to Egypt to see, I was like, I don't get it. How does a person sleep in a doorway? Yeah. And it does turn out that, you know, that classical architecture, a doorway is much more what we would might call a portico mm. or an entryway, something like that. So I think there were actual places like that where people, and you still see it today, right? People sleeping maybe on the porch of a church, that would be something like Mary of Egypt's sleeping yeah. in doorways. Yeah. Um, but she would have really had no home after she left her family in Egypt in, you know, when she was 12. So for at least, well, for the rest of her life, she never had a home. Yeah. So the way that you write about Mary, um, she seems to really enjoy sex. Um, that's what the ancient documents tell us. Yeah. Well, I can't read those. So I'm saying the way that you read them. <laughs> the way um, I said it. Yeah. yeah I, I can't read those. I, I barely know English. Um, so I don't, I don't know how to talk about that aspect of Mary, about how to learn from it, about how to discuss desire in a healthy way um, in the culture that I currently live in wrapped up with the trauma of like purity culture and that type of stuff. What would you say to someone like me asking yeah. that? Mostly because I am asking that question, but like, I don't know how to hold all of that at the same time. And I have really absolutely struggled with it because on the one hand, you know, why would I trust this seventh, this, you know, seventh century patriarch from Jerusalem, you know, a celibate priest patriarch of the, church to tell me what a woman feels like when she has sex and what she feels like when she has sex with strangers for money. Like, I, why would I trust him to know what that was like for her? So when I encountered that document, I already have kind of a lot of suspicion and a feeling like, I don't, I don't know if this guy knows what he's talking about. I have no idea. And plus we're talking about at least at the beginning here, a 12 year old girl, mm. which is just creepy. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I think we can all, more or less agree on that. So um, I think it is an aspect of Mary's life that I don't fully understand, and I'm not sure what to make of it. But the, but on the other hand, I don't want to take this idea that she was having sex because she liked it away from her either and turn her into a victim because she makes it pretty clear that she's not a victim and that she doesn't see herself that way. And so I, I struggle to know how to talk about it as well, but the one piece that does kind of make sense to me and that has made sense to me over time is that her desire, whatever that was, her desire for other people, her desire for sex, her desire for a bigger world, her desire to travel, whatever that was, it led her into a more and more open, more holy, more full life. And I think that's worth paying attention to. Mm. Um, I want to connect. Actually, no, I have a tongue-in-cheek question because it's been bothering me. And I, <laughs> it's the only thing that I highlighted in pink. I don't know why pink. It's probably because it's a lot. So there's a part when you're the at, you're at the church for the Holy Sepulchre or you're in between. I think you go one day and you leave empty-handed. You come back the next day. And there's a part in here where you say, um, you know, the next day your mother and you went back to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, determined to find Mary's Chapel, Um this time, every other person in the church seemed to be Russian. 
Russians crowded the courtyard, followed priests around, kissed icons, took selfies, and then you write in here, maybe it was special Russian day at the church. I've continued to worry about that. Like, what, why so many, I was taken aback, I was reading you about you being in Israel, and all these Russians are here. And, and there was another Russians. aside as well of that's the Russian mafia hotel right there. Like right, what is exactly. going on here? Is it There's special so Russian day? Or? Russians. There are so many Russians in Israel, so many Russian pilgrims. Um, here's another cool thing about, I don't know if I know the answer to this, to this question, but yeah, there's just Russians <laughs> everywhere. And, um, so it used to be that these Russian parishes in like rural Russia would send one old lady on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to take, to bring back fire from the church of the Holy Sepulcher. And then they would put that fire into their church. And now, according to sources that I read while I was there, there are like whole jets on, you know, in Tel Aviv, just packing um, full of flames of the church of the Holy Sepulcher or whatever that they're gearing back to Russia. I don't know if that's true. How do you keep um, that? Bur- anyway, I don't know. Now that's, that I'm saying it out loud, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. So that's I take it like, all back. Um, I have no idea if that's, it's true. That's like the Olympics, but backwards. But backwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. But yeah, there are a lot of Russians in Israel. And I mean, this the chapel of Mary of Egypt that I eventually did find um, was built by Russian pilgrims. It mm. was clearly a Russian um, pilgrimage site. And so I think, you know, Mary has a special relationship with with Russians. Yeah, I want to, so let me go back outside of my random question about Russians. <laughs> um, so at the beginning of the text, you talk about a friend, Ali, and she's she's speaking with some form of alternative medicine um, person. Your friend had cancer, um, you know, which cancer is son of a bitch. Anyway, yeah. I buried my father uh, a year uh, and a half ago. To the, I just hate cancer. Uh, I hate, anybody has cancer. It's, it's not it's not fun. Um, but there's a part in there where she says the, the person that, that Ali's talking with of you know you let them get the get the flower and you and I will dig for the root. And then towards the back half of that book that you've written here, um, as you're hiking, you keep seeing flowers. And I'm curious if mm-hmm. there is an intentional putting together there of flowers and roots, or if that's subconscious or I don't know. It was just a question that yeah, kept popping no, through my I, mind. I don't think I, I don't think I saw that, um, that connection. I, um, I know that when I was hiking in the desert and we were, you know, all but dying, um, because we didn't bring enough water and cause it was a super long day. And cause I'm a really slow hiker. Mm. I mean, the thing I didn't say in the book is that the fact that our poor, uh, guide almost dies is because of me, because mm. I am so slow. Um, but anyway, along that, trek um those little tiny flowers that grow in the desert you know they have no water you got to wonder how deep their roots are because how can they grow and yet you know there are these little tiny flowers and i i think i might have thought of them as maybe metaphors of mary herself of like this incredible flower of a human being that grows out of soil that really shouldn't produce a flower question that I kept thinking about as I, as I read through is what does our church today have to learn from 
not only iconography, because iconography, I think, is as well as is kind of foreign, but from someone like Mary, um, because the correlations that I kept coming back to in my head were, Mary reminds me a lot of John the Baptist. I don't know mm-hmm. why, which makes me wonder if she was a scene, because I am convinced that um, that John was. I can't prove that, but I've read enough that I feel like possibly. Um, but what is there to learn? Like, why? What is there to learn from Mary? First of all, in the tradition, she's often set up like that with John the Baptist. Mm. So like, if you walk into the church of, um, oh, what's it called? Theodosius in Bethlehem. They've got kind of like all these women lined up on, on one side and all the men lined up on another. So there are all these images of saints. And all the men are dressed kind of in these, what you would think of as sort of a saint's robe type thing. I'm sure you can picture it in your mind. And then there's John the Baptist. And he's got like this wild hair and he's mostly naked. And, you know, he's wearing these, he's barefooted. And, and so he stands out. And then if you look on the women's side, the women are all dressed in um, very, what we think of that a kind of iconic figure of Mary, the mother of God with the drapery, you know, head covering and long robe. And then there's Mary of Egypt and she's dressed almost exactly like John the Baptist, Mm. except just slightly more clothes on. Huh. So So there is that kind of mirroring mirroring. And so that would be intentional to serve what purpose though? Yeah. I think, I think she's that wild element, Mm -hmm. you know, that wild element of, of the Christian tradition that gets so easily covered up or, or plowed under by the things we want the church to look like or things we want it to be. Mm. And I think she's just that, she's that renegade figure who doesn't fit and who isn't ever going to fit. And we have to kind of go out to find her. We have to go out of what we already know to find her. And when we find her, we figure out that, you know, at the root of all of this is love. Mm. And that's what she's doing in the desert is she's, she's, being in love with the world, with God, with she's in deep communication with the elements, with her own nature. Um, and I think that, you know, she kind of is the root in that sense. Hmm. Um, and that root is love. Yeah. So I want to read a little bit of your book to you, but I'm going to read it out of order um, because it, it honestly, it helps for the question, but it, it's, it's the way that I read it as well, because it's the way that I read. So there's a part in here where you leave Bishop Isidoros, and I'm not sure if I'm saying Isidros. that correctly. Isidros. I think it's Isidros. I'm going to go with that. Something like that. Um, go with that. Uh, you, you leave because you're you're in a place and you're vulnerable, and, and the entire place is empty. Um, you talk about the emptiness also in you um, that you'd been carrying carefully. And then you quote somebody named Goeth or Goeth. Again, I'm not sure how to say that word either, um, where you say, die and become... And then you say, but he left out what happens in the middle, in the between. The old life has to be released. And in the middle of that releasing, there might just be an empty chapel, a place to remember and a place to forget, a place to lay down the past at a broken altar and allow what had been to liquefy, to empty, to let go. Now, I'm not sure what of that is you and what of that is him. But circling back to right before that, you say anything in the process of becoming has to become empty. What is becoming? Mm. Yeah, this is one of the mysteries of this whole process. It started for me, um, I'm going to have this really great way of not answering any of your questions. Um, (laughs) When I was at the um, Monastery of St. Anthony, 
And this is where that, that line die and become. And I think the whole quotation goes something like die and become until you learn this, you are, but a troubled guest on this earth, something like that. So dying and becoming this poet, this German poet, and I'll say it, I think the way you say his name is Goethe. Just for your future reference. Way wrong. So Goethe <laughs> says, die and become. And I, okay, so I'm at this monastery of St. Anthony. And um, the priest says to me, this priest is Father Lucas. He's taking us around. Really cool guy, dentist. I really liked him. And he was saying, you know, nobody dies here at the monastery of St. Anthony. We just translate. And I'm like, come on, you just showed me a whole bunch of crypts where a whole bunch of people are buried. And you've shown me all these dead people and these dead people for centuries. And, you know, people die here just like they die everywhere. And it was even more personal to me, of course, because I was like, and my friend Allie is dying and she's going to die and I can't stop it. And so I was a little bit almost angry at his denial of death and and this idea that people at the monastery of St. Anthony are somehow different from the rest of us and they don't die. That's how I took it at the time. But as I went along this journey, I just, I started to observe it everywhere that we are always dying and we are always becoming, and it's always happening all the time. It's, it's in every process of our lives. It's happening to you right now. It's happening to me right now. It's everywhere. It's happening mentally. It's happening emotionally, physically. We're in this process of dying and becoming. And until we learn that, as Goethe says, we are but a troubled guest on this earth. In other words, this is fundamentally what life is, this dying and this becoming. Mm. And so when I went to the chapel of Mary of Egypt, which had been empty for 60 years, I didn't know what to make of the fact that it had died, really. The chapel had died. Pilgrims didn't come there anymore. And it wasn't, and you know, then Bishop Isidros, sweet, sweet, sweet man, points, you know, at the construction materials, like, well, we're thinking about doing something with it. And you're kind of like, sure you are, you know, in another 150 years. Right? Have they? That was one of my questions. Because no, um, no, you I referenced mean, that. Yeah. No, they, of course they haven't. And, and I mean, I think they were storing stuff there. I don't think they really had a plan. If you've ever been there, I mean, it's the craziest place ever. Things are dying and becoming there all the time. You know, it's just a place of content. And of course, it's the place where um, Jesus died and became, right? So it's it's this place, an incredible process. But I don't think they were actually doing anything with the Chapel of Mary of Egypt. Now, maybe because I was the first person in 60 years to ask, and maybe more people will go and ask. Maybe they'll be like, yeah, we should have a chapel. We should reopen it. But hmm. I was not under the impression that was happening. Huh. So what does it say about the state of... Uh, possessionship in the church that it takes a Muslim to be there at that <laughs> at that cha- at that chapel at that church to ensure that people play fair. I'm not sure that I'm saying yeah. that right. But Isn't what, that great? What does it say about our faith that that's and it, that, that's been true of our faith for so many hundreds of years? Yeah. So quickly, I'll just fill everybody in that, and maybe many of your listeners know this, but at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the site that Christians honor the death and resurrection of Jesus kind of in this one spot where both the res- the crucifixion and the resurrection were said to have happened. Um, for a thousand years, since the time, since, well, more like 1500 years, they've had a Muslim doorkeeper in front of the church and the keys to the church have been given to a, one Muslim family that lives in the old city and then passes those keys down generation to generation because the Christians who um, are in that building can't, 
get along or agree about anything. And so in order to protect the whole, they have to give the keys to an outside entity, so this Muslim doorkeepers who are like really amazing human beings and mm. who I really enjoyed when I was there. But mm. um, yeah, and even inside the church, there are so many different entities and they really don't know that much about each other or really spend any time together. So if you ask one of the Greek Orthodox uh, priests something about the Coptic priests, they don't really know. Um, they're like, well, they kind of, they're over there and they'll send you in that direction. But it's not like there's a lot of communication. They don't have like, you know, monthly committee meetings, like where everybody comes to the table and they're like, now what should we do this month? It's not like that at all. They just kind of go their own way and it's pretty chaotic. That's sad. Yeah. Is sad. Unity is not a strong a strength of us Christians. We are not, <laughs> we're not big on that. We're not doing it well. Yeah. It's almost as though they're all on their own little merry pilgrimages, pil- pilgrimages, yeah. unable to enter the the space of and one then, another. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, which is kind of what I got in reading the book. Of you know, everyone has a pilgrimage to do, and and you should have permission to enter spaces or figure out why you don't have permission to enter mm-hmm. the spaces that you should. Those those liminal spaces of of holiness. Um, why did you feel led to have to translate the entire? or what you could gather of Mary in the back of the book. Like I can't even imagine the amount of work that goes into that. Yeah. Well, it all started, that started for me. Okay. So a couple of books ago, I was writing a book about Julian of Norwich. So mm. the first woman to ever write a book in English. And I was, I was trying Wait, to enter Julian her. was Julian really? first book, first woman ever to write a book in English huh. yeah, that we know of the first book we have. Huh. Um, yeah. And so I was, I was reading her and I was struggling with a lot of her story as well. That seems to be something that I do. Like I enter the story. I don't get it. Bleeding crosses, weird stuff, illnesses, what's going on. I don't get it. And, um, I found actually, I can pull it off my shelf. It's really awesome. I found this edition of Julian's work in middle English. And I started reading it, even though I don't have any training in Middle English, but it's a great edition. And I was able to look at a lot of the footnotes if I was confused and I was able to use other translations. But I felt like for the first time I heard Mary's voice, I mean, Julian's voice, and I could really get it because I could hear her through the Middle English. And so when I, when I started exploring this Mary of Egypt story, I, um, I thought, well, you know what I really need to do is just read the text. I, I just need to do the same thing I did with Julian. I need to take the text as close to the original as I can get and read that, and then I'll get it. And so that's when I started studying Greek and um, moving on to patristic Greek and then translating the story of Mary of Egypt with the help of my dad, I should say, who's a Greek scholar. So I was not out there on my own on this. Um, but we, you know, we just kind of one thing led to another. We read it, we translated it. Um, and that's what's at the back of the book, but it didn't have anywhere near the effect that I wanted it to. In fact, it just made me more confused. And I, I was like, of course, Mary of Egypt didn't write a book. Like when I read Julian, she wrote that that's her voice. She put that onto paper. Mm-hmm. Mary of Egypt didn't write a book. She didn't even read and write. And so the fact that I can't, uncover or discover her voice obviously makes perfect sense. But 
I had to get pretty far into the text and this work of translating it before I had that kind of aha moment. Oh yeah, you're not going to get anywhere this way. Yeah. What, what is a good practice for, so at the beginning of the book, for those of you that haven't read it, um, there's a part where you're taking a poem or you've turned it into a poem of, of Mary and, and you talk about stripping away words that really didn't have any, didn't, wasn't yeah. really doing it for you. Wasn't really, wasn't really holding it there. <laughs> What I think that that's an important practice of 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 sifting when we're when we're dealing with God. How should one approach something like that to I ensure that they're that. doing well? I love that. I mean, I really did it by a kind of gut level feeling, um, and I think that is probably the right way at the end of the day, right? To stay in touch with your to to kind of strip away all those voices that say it should be like this, or maybe it, it, you know, you're doing it wrong or whatever. And just try to listen for what really is speaking to you. What is in here that, and I think this practice happens in Christianity, like with Lexio Divina, mm. right? So when you do Lexio Divina, you mm -hmm. read the text and you sit with the text. Maybe you read it a couple of times, but eventually you're just listening for, I think they, I think other people have called this glimmerings, mm. like those little sparkles that are in the text that are just for you. Mm. And when it glimmers like that, and if you take enough time with it and you really listen, um, you, you begin to, to creep toward what this text is doing in and for and with you. And that's kind of what I did with Mary of Egypt, although I certainly at that moment didn't have that kind of language to describe what I was doing. I was just acting completely on instinct. Um, this fascinates me. I don't understand why. And I'm going to copy out the parts of it I like and leave everything I don't like. I don't think that's probably the greatest way to go about <laughs> this, but that's just where I was, you know? Yeah. That's just where I was. Yeah, and there's also nothing that says that you don't reread it and copy no, different I, copy different right. words. There's a book that I read almost annually, and I highlight different sections, and it's fun to watch what I highlighted years ago because the high, I have a legend at the beginning of what year I used yellow and what year I used you know, pink, what oh, you're using. Oh, that's fun. Oh um, my gosh, I love it. What book is it? Are you going to tell us? Uh, I, I can. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll remind me and I'll tell you at the end. Okay. Um, it, it is a long book, um, but it, and it's a good book. But actually, I think you would enjoy it um, just from reading this book. Um, but it's fun to see what I highlighted years ago and then reflect and be like, right. I do remember that version of me. Yeah. I was th I'm thankful for that version of me. Um, that's but not me. That's what is so amazing. Each time you're new, each time you're a different person and the text then is a different thing. And of yeah. course, I mean, yeah, after that initial moment of encountering the story of Mary of Egypt and then stripping out all the stuff that I couldn't make any sense of and really zeroing in on this is the part that speaks to me. And for me, it was that encounter between Zosimus, who kind of like represents the church and Mary, this wild woman out in the desert. And it was their encounter, the meeting, the mm. two of them together that spoke to me. That's what I was somehow looking for in myself. And, um, and, and that's what I copied out. But then of course, after that, I, I'd learned Greek for goodness sake. and read the, Do you still thing. use that today on a daily, like you, you learn all that to translate this one thing. And then you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to keep rocking no. and rolling with the Greek. I mean, I have a Greek New Testament and whenever I encounter something and I'm like, Ooh, I want to know more about that. Or I, you know, I'm exploring it. I'm grateful to have the Greek, um, to be able to read certain things and like, look at it, but no, I mean, I, if you asked me to sit down and translate Mary of Egypt right now, I mean, I couldn't do it. 
Couldn't do it. No. Yeah. I'd have to start. I'd have to practically start over at the beginning. Yeah. Neither can I. I couldn't do it either. Um, I know the little I know is is I'm hopeful that other people knew because they told me and I memorized it. But I think that's what all <laughs> translations are of anything that, that they're this old. So I haven't asked you this question. And it's because I wanted to save it for one of the last ones. So what is a wild woman in, in the spiritual yeah. sense that you're like, what does that look like both for Mary, but more importantly for today? Yeah. I am still trying to answer that question and I answer, I feel like I turn it over and over in my head all the time. Um, and I don't always get to the same place, which probably is the essence of a wild woman. Um, so to start with a wild woman is an archetype. So it's, it's a kind of representation of a way of being in the world that matters and is layered on with other ways of being, I would say. So for me, it's a kind of essence. It's a, it's a person who's been stripped down to the essence of their being. And they are in deep contact with the elemental aspects of life. They're in contact with the wind and the water and the air and the ground. So it has some, it has an elemental aspect to it. And then it has a willingness to go out into the unknown, to, to risk, to step out of what makes a person comfortable and go into what is uncomfortable. And mm. so I would say those are the two maybe key pieces for me, the abandoning of the known for the unknown, the willingness to venture out and, um, and see things in the most elemental way that you can. Do you think that the church in the country that you and I live in are prepared, are prepared for anyone of any gender to present themselves with that posture? No, no, <laughs> no I can't really imagine it. Um, but, you know, I think I, um, you know, I work for this magazine called the Christian century and um, next uh, next month we're going to be publishing a, an issue that's has desert stories in it mm. of people who have gone into the desert to do different sorts of things. And there's a beautiful essay in that um, written by Belden Lane, who's written a lot about the desert. And he writes about going into the desert to mourn his son. And there's a kind of similar stripped down elemental willingness to suffer and be in pain and face what he didn't know about himself. Um, in that landscape that I think speaks can speak to all of us because we're all, um, you know, life, we're always dying and becoming, I guess it comes down to that. And that is not a peaceful process or, you know, an easy one. Yeah. What are a handful of things that you think, um, the church as a whole unrelated to the book, um, need to intentionally be allowed to talk about or question or, or doubt in our Mm -hmm. congregations and if we can't, then the churches we know it really has no hope for a path forward. Well, that's a big question, Seth. I, I really have <laughs> tried. I, I try. I don't know if you've read, when you read my other books, you'll notice that I try really hard never to speak of the church. So I don't have the faintest idea about that. It's thing. the one question I use as a play on words of the name of the podcast. So the, those you. things that we you should be able to. Yeah. in church, right? Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. Um, so. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I, I go to this little church here in Leadville, Colorado, that is 
um, a really strange place. And it always has been a really strange place. And I, I don't actually know very much about other churches because I don't really go to them. So <laughs> I, I kind of just have this one little tiny church that's, that I call the land of the misfit toys, you know, like the, the, the Jack in the box, whose name is Charlie, Charlie you know, yeah. and like, um, that's kind of, isn't there what, a bird like, with fire truck wheels or something like that? I as think well. so. Or, like, or that as well. like, um, yeah, there is definitely wheels that are involved in some weird way for sure. Um, and so I feel like one of the things that I've read, the reason I am at this church is because people said really inappropriate things there all the time. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that doesn't happen in other places. So like there was this one day where um, Allie was preaching. She's barefoot. She's sitting. She she often preached barefoot and sitting on the altar right there and on the steps leading up to the altar. And she was sitting there and she was preaching on um, uh, a man who had the, um, the man who had unclean spirit. And in front of me was sitting this guy named Derek who was an alcoholic, like really hardcore alcoholic. And he was drunk that day. And as she was preaching, he raised his hand and she said, uh, yes. And he said, am I an unclean spirit? And there was some silence, you know, it was pretty awkward. And, and I could tell that Allie was sort of struggling with herself over that. Like, should she say, no. Should she say yes? Should she say, let's talk about this later? You know? <laughs> and, um, I think, I think what she said, if I remember right, was that's a really interesting question. <laughs> and so we proceeded from there. And I think that is one of those things that I, um, I do think was missing. If, if I have any idea what's going on out there in the church, uh, writ large, um, we're missing that moment of meeting people in those raw places where they uh, they are not fully themselves, maybe, but but it really hurts there, you know. And I think St. George, this place in in Leadville, has been full of those sort of awkward moments where people say more than maybe they meant to or maybe they should, and it's been treated with with dignity and mm. treated with um, honesty and. So I think that without that experience, I think it would have been pretty hard for me to take a wild woman journey like the one I took because yeah. I was carrying that with me. Yeah. For you, Amy, when you try to put words to whatever God is or the divine is, um, what is that? Hmm. Love. And that's a trite answer, but it's the only one I really have, you know, that that at the root of this is love, that what we're doing is love, that this process of dying and becoming is love, that um, all of it is somehow in some mysterious way, love that we are being welcomed into, that we are being taught, that we're being um, changed into love. I think that for me is the divine mm, no, or the holy yeah. God. Yeah, no, I like it. I like it. Now, it is, it's an easy, it's not, it's not a tried answer. Um, uh, so I've asked that question of everyone for almost two years now. Um, and at the end of the year, uh, the last episode of the year is just that answer mixed together. There is none of me. It's just that. Repetitive, just back to back to back. And they're hearing people that say they're freaking powerful. Definition. But I've had people that oh, are sick awesome. on the show and 
um, atheist on the show. And you know, it, it doesn't matter. Everybody gets the question. It's, it's just so fun. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. it's, it's Somebody it's, picked up when I, I, at one point I did, I, I had people, I was at an event and I had people do little mini book reviews of Wild Woman. And one, uh, one woman got up and she just took a passage where I had written about God and she just inserted the word love. And she just asked the people in the audience to notice what's what's the difference, what what happened when I did that, um, and that was kind of fascinating. Mm. Mm. Yeah, where would you direct people to 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 do all things that that are Amy to to follow what you do to to read the stuff mm. that you edit at Christian Century? I think editing mm. is what you do. Like, where would yeah. you direct people towards? Oh gosh, um, well for sure the Christian Century, you know the the magazine itself, ChristianCentury.org. Um, and it's a, it's an amazing magazine with lots of fascinating takes on religion and culture and politics. And, um, it's been around for a really long time. So at least a century, at least a century. I think the century <laughs> they're referring to is the 20th century from the perspective of the 19th. Yeah. But that breaks the joke. And also it didn't really work. I mean, the 20th century wasn't much of a Christian century anyway, but, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, also my website, uh, amyforcolm.com. I don't. I don't do a lot with it, but you know, the basics, you can find the basics there. <laughs> and, um, yeah, 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 I would say. Yeah. Good. Amy, thank you for your time tonight. I've, I've enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah. And thank thanks for the so book much. as well. Yeah. Now I haven't added it up, but there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts on the internet. And I am humbled that you continue to download this one. If this is your first time here, please know that there are transcripts of these shows. Not always in real time, but I do my best. And if you go back in the logs, you can find transcripts for pretty much any episode that you'd like. The show is recorded and edited by me, but it is produced by the patron supporters of the show. That is one of the best, if not the best way that you can support the show. If you get anything at all out of these episodes, if you think on them or if you, you know, you're out and about and you tell your friends about it or, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, boss, pastor, here's what I heard. What are your thoughts on that? If this is helping you in any way, and it is helping me, consider supporting the show in that manner. It is extremely inexpensive, but collectively, it is so very much helpful. Now for you, I pray that you are blessed and you know that you're cherished and beloved. We'll talk soon.